Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Today, I am thrilled to have Andrew Kaufman with me. I first came across Andrew's work when one of my husband's friends gifted him the book, All My Friends Are Superheroes. And I promptly stole it, read it, completely fell in love with it. And ever since, I've really loved reading Andrew's work, including things like Born Weird and The Waterproof Bible. So I'm very excited to ask Andrew all the craft-based questions today. But before we dive in, Andrew, is there anything else people should know about you and your work? Um, uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think if this is going to be a masterclass on comedy, yeah. I should probably start with admitting I never intentionally make things funny. Mm. I can tell when something is funny, but I don't have any secrets at all about, uh, like, I don't know why something is funny. Mm. So uh, let's see if we can figure something out over the next 40. That's perfect. Because I actually wanted to start there because... Like, for example, one of the reviews of All My Friends as Superheroes said it's one of the saddest, funniest, strangest, and most romantic books, which has like, what an amazing combination. And that's, <laughs> that comes up in so many reviews that your books are so sad and so funny, which I think is why I'm really drawn to them. Because although we use the term comedy very broadly, I don't mean in that like laugh a minute sense. I mean in that sense that there is the lightness, there is the play, there is the delight that makes all kinds of really sad uh, situations bearable. So that was actually going to be my first question is just how conscious that is for you or not. Like, do you ever end up sitting there with a scene and thinking, oh, I want to inject more humor into this to lighten it or conversely kind of be there thinking, oh, I want to actually, this is getting too funny. I want to ground it and take it back the other way. Or is it quite an unconscious process for you? I mean, it is pretty unconscious, although I am aware, I think I'm Canadian and okay. one of the one of the real sort of um, national one of the few national characteristics we really have is that we do tend to use humor hmm. to deal with everything. It uh, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's positive or negative. Hmm. If uh, there's a whole there's a lot of tall prop poppy thing going on. So if you're like getting a little big too big for your britches in Canada, humor is going to take you down. <laughs> Or if you're overwhelmed by a horrible situation, well, humor is going to be what what cuts that situation down, makes you able to manage it, right? So I do think that's just part of being Canadian. Uh, as far as the writing goes, I don't ever consciously say I'd like to have a funny scene. In fact, more often than not, I have to admit that there are people who find lines in my books really funny. Hmm. And <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> intentional for the... For the writing, one of the things I do with the prose is um, because it's magic realism, because it's really asking a lot of the reader. I ask a lot of the reader to suspend their disbelief. And so I use these short sentences that, uh, uh, you know, just kind of clop along and don't, don't, aren't demanding a lot of the reader. Hopefully it feels like it's downward. But because of that, there's actually a lot of space in between what gets said and what isn't said. And I'm very conscious of the fact that in my work, uh, I know it's funny and the reader knows it's funny, but the text doesn't know it's funny. <laughs> and somehow those two being on the same side or op- of, of the actual thing that you're reading 
I don't know if this is making any sense it at is. all, but that's sort of like what I try to go for. So I will increase the humor. I, some, you know, it's all these in writing is like when it comes right down to it, it's just everyone's using the same 26 characters, right? So it's like, who knows how it works, but it's, there is a sense that I'm conscious of. And when I'm building it, when I'm editing it, I can, I can feel it. I can feel mm. when I'm starting to get to that point where the reader can tell that the writer knows it's funny mm. and the reader will think it's funny, but the actual words on the page mm. aren't. Well, I say where as if it's a living thing, but they never <laughs> just, they never consciously point out and say, hey, you're supposed to find this funny. And I think that's how my prose writing is the best. Does that make sense? It does. And honestly, that answer just delights my brain, thinking of the text as this kind of third character. Because yeah. I... I, I like in some ways, I see what you're saying. It doesn't sound logical, but it's it, that's absolutely right. And that, I think yeah. that is where the the game is, and in that conversation. But like you say, it's not um, the text is has it like this love for me, this lovely tension between being so incredibly straightforward, and that like you say asking a big jump in terms of the reader. And there's just something yeah, yeah. so delightful in that. And that was actually going to be my next um, question for you: is what labels? do you feel comfortable with that people put on your work? Because it, it can be tricky for different writers being labeled, but it's needed for marketing and different things. So is oh, magical 100%. realism the term that you feel most comfortable with, do you think? I hate that term. And do I don't you? think it is. I, I mean, I, I mean, you call it whatever you want. Yeah, You're actually going to talk about my work? Mm. I'm fine with it. You call it, you say what magic realism, say what you want. Mm. Um, magic realism, I think, is from from my understanding, is just become a catch-all mm. for any sort of fiction that doesn't isn't realistic. Mm. So if you have metaphoric stuff or you have characters, you know, like I have talking frogs, I have people mm. who fly, I have all that sort of stuff in my work. So it gets called magic realism because people just don't know what else to call it. Mm. Where in actuality, magic realism is like, you know, it's Latin American mm -hmm. and it's Catholic, right? Like mm. it's a really specific genre from a specific time in a specific place, and and I'm neither Catholic nor uh, Latino, so uh, so so I don't. I'm not comfortable with the word magic realism. I would never self-identify, but if you want to use that, that's totally fine. Mm. For me, uh, what they are is parables. But when you say mm. parable, you instantly people hear Jesus and New Testament mm. and and all those sort of stories, right? So. Um, so there's that, but yeah, if you look at the work, I'm actually stealing the structure of like Aesop's fables or, or, uh, or, you know, those, the small stories, there's some sort of setup. And then what happens has some sort of easily articulated, uh, point of view or piece of information at the end of it. Right. Mm. And all the best stories and all my friends, are superheroes and the tiny wife and what I consider my best work operates under that. Mm. Uh, structure. So I would say they're allegorical. Mm. It's an allegorical narrative, uh, fable-esque. But uh, but people, don't, those words. I mean, they're fairy tales, right? Like, let's just get down to it. I I would love to call them fairy tales, but again, everyone thinks you know Hansel and Gretel and that they're kids' literature. So the marketing reminds me a bit of like uh, I'm I'm 55, so I grew up listening to new wave music. Mm. which in Britain was called post-punk, but in North America, no one 
no one, it, no one, they couldn't market punk over here. So they just came up with a new phrase to say, oh, it's new ways. Uh, and so I, it feels a bit like that. Mm. I think there's a lot of, like, what do you call George Saunders? What do you call Amy Bender? Mm. You know what I mean? There's a lot of uh, writers, contemporary writers, uh, who are also writing in a fantastical, in a fabulous way mm. uh, that it could call romantic realism. And I, anyway, I'm rambling. But yeah, I would say that it's like, that it's just Fable-esque. Yeah, I, I love that. And again, it's that thing where it is... Hold on, um, like left, later. Yeah, no worries. Do you want to have a little reset of your... Wait, I can't hear a thing. It's okay. I lost both of them. Oh, Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think what it is was when you started talking about the text like being its own person, you blew like yes. you blew the mind so much that the ear, earbuds just popped out. <laughs> it's all good. Oh, yeah. It's uh, uh, the text is the straight man. Is yeah. What it turns into. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. exactly it. No, but that that makes so much sense. And again, I am. I, that's my perception of reading them as well is that they read like fables but all of these words become so loaded because then like you say it's yeah. not like Aesop's fables and like you say parable yes but not from the bible and so again like when people are just trying to put one word on it again I've seen your word described your work described as fantasy and it's like it's yeah. fantastical but fantasy is also very loaded uh so there's yeah. no dragons although you know maybe and there's no sword it's not sword and sorcery right yeah I think it's closer to fantasy than it is anything else mm. but um but because it's it's been picked up as a literary thing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Magic realism is a, is a still a posh word. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Okay. You get you get put in the in the fancy part of the bookstore. If, uh, right. If uh, you call magic realism, yeah. the, the genre stuff over here, right? And you've well, yeah, and interesting. But then as soon as you put superheroes with it as well, then you get the the kind of yeah. popularity with it too, <laughs> which I think is great. Hundred um, percent. Yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned George Saunders. Um, who yeah. who else um, as writers or creators uh, do you really enjoy? I know it's a big question, but I'm asking all guests because we get a couple of recommendations and I always then selfishly go and read them or watch them. I, uh, so, so there's a couple of American writers, one of whom's really embarrassing that I have to like totally acknowledge. Uh, in fact, they're both kind of embarrassing. I wish I had better literary taste. I'm not going to talk about like the super fancy. Anyway, I love Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, I love Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Uh, I think he's super funny. I think his, his dealing with sadness and tragedy mm. is fabulous. And I think he's got really good things to say. Yeah. He's like, he's got a really positive message mm. in, in from a really cynical voice. It's beautiful mix. Uh, and then I like an American writer called Richard Brodigan, which was super big in the sixties. Uh, he was, he wrote a book called, uh, uh, well, my favorite book of his is in watermelon sugar, mm. uh, which is this amazing. I love it. Love it. I highly can recommend that. Some of his other work is hot and cold, uh, but he was a hippie mm. and he was a real hardcore hippie. And then when the sixties ended, he was kind of like thrown out with the whole, you know, institution or I don't know if he's an institution, but anyway, yeah. he fell out of favor. Uh, and for a while, when I was going to university in the late eighties, uh, he was a very popular writer amongst people who wanted to become writers. But mm. since then he's really fallen out of favor. I think he's like used to seeing when used bookstores that used to be the hardest thing to find. 
and now he's totally gone. So. Right, I'm definitely have to look at yeah. it. Yeah, in watermelon sugar, sugar, I can totally stand. Still recommend uh, the Hawkline mystery. I would also still recommend. You know, uh, he's got some books that that haven't aged well. Uh, so, but they're yeah. you know a couple like that. Sometimes it's interesting just to read things in their context as well. So yeah. that's great. And um, I am really not a fan of any kind of snobbery around art. I just think we should just love what we love. I have a section on my yeah. website called Stash. And the only rule for me is that I love it. So whatever I love goes in there. <laughs> and I don't really care what everyone else thinks. So that's great. Awesome. I have a huge thing for uh, detective fiction. Right. Uh, yeah. And I just just love it so much. And it's like, Every third book I read, I have to make myself read other books so I don't just read, like, you know, noir stuff from the 50s that I absolutely love. So, oh, just that too. yeah, no, that, that, that's great. And I can see then how that makes that like special mix with yours for things like the Ticking Heart. So, yeah. yeah. Ticking Heart is I couldn't, I couldn't keep the barn door closed on how much yeah. I loved it. I mean, Good. that is, that is a by the numbers uh, detective story of the 50s right but still with your um really strong voice because i i do think like of all the writers that i read you're you have one of the like most distinctive voices in like if someone was like right we're going to set up a bet and the game is like we're going to lay all these books out and you're going to open them and not read the covers like which author are you going to go for for being able to think oh i think that's their book and you are one of those writers where i think that in the best possible way because even oh, though they well, are the really year. different and they are, um, we still just get such different characters, such distinctive characters, such different worlds, different themes. So it's not that they're similar in that sense, but in terms of like feeling the human behind it, I'm going to take the bet on being able to go, oh, okay, <laughs> I want the Andrew Kaufman challenge. So I wanted to, that was one of my questions for you is, I know it can be really hard to self-interpret, but do you have any sense of, how you got through that process to develop such a distinctive voice, like what that was like for you, where you started, yeah, how it emerged. Totally, totally know what happened. I used to have, so I, I wrote, I've written every day since I was 18 mm. and I didn't get anything published. I've had a really hard time getting anything published. Um, and so I took my best story and sent it to a magazine called Blood and Aphorisms, Canadian periodical. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but at the time it was like the one. Uh, and so I was like, okay, just forget the New Yorker, forget Granta. I was just like, you know, boom, gonna, gonna do this. And I got a rejection letter and the editor, the, the editor of the time was a guy named Ken Sparling, Canadian writer. Uh, and he had taken the first three pages and he had stroked out everything. Let's say there's 250 words on a page. It would be like 30 pages. There are 30 words left on every page. Everything else would have been stroked out. And I was like, and I, I wasn't even offended, right? I was just sort of like, well, this is so ludicrous. I'm just going to laugh at this. But then I kept thinking about it and I kept thinking about it. And so I printed the story out again and I did what he'd done to every, to the rest of the pages. And all of a sudden it was like, well, that totally makes sense. Mm. Like because of the way these stories roll out, because they're so emotional, because they're dealing with with uh, 
allegory, I think. Mm. The language has got to be really simple. The rhythm has to be seductive. The, the, where the sequence of information has to be really straightforward. Uh, and that's, it just sort of came out of, out of that. Now, I now have sentences with, you know, more than one clause, mm. but I'm six books in before I've, I've done that. And every time I sit down to write a book, I always sit down saying, again, I'm going to do a lot of description mm. and I'm going to have long, complicated sentences and I'm going to make those really beautiful turns of phrase that real writers do. Uh, and I write a draft like that and then I read it and I just hate it. I hate it so much. And then I like rewrite it until it has that really straightforward mm. style. It's just and, the way it feels right. Yeah. And I'm wondering, so this is the theory I'm developing just now, but they're your books. So you tell me if I'm off with this, that if there is something around, um, like you say, the both the, the simplicity of the construction of sentences that means that you can absorb it, but the care yeah. with the rhythm of it means that you can, or some a brain like mine with your books, I can like almost absorb the visuals and the characters and respond in real time to the like the delight and the play and the comedy of it in a way that's nothing to do with like snarky dialogue or um, you know sarcasm. It's not those things. It's the actual like visual play. Whereas when someone writes with um, like much more clauses and complicated sentences and wrap down, I'm, I'm in my head very intellectually and I tend not to find things as funny because I'm uh, yeah. more of a remove. Whereas your books, I'm always so emotionally vested, invested in yeah, yeah. the sadness to the heartache to the awkwardness <laughs> to, but that means when the comedy comes, it just like whaps me <laughs> one sentence and I will have a reaction to the humor in a much stronger way than I do in books that um, have a lot more like construct, like, evidently constructed word uh verbiage yeah. if that makes sense i mean it, in in reality it's just being really manipulative okay. because this the sentences are so small mm. and short and straightforward mm. you don't realize how much information I'm giving you. yeah right i am describing how red the apple is mm -hmm. right but you don't i don't know i need a better I I was I can't really give you a better example, but it's like because you're getting all these short mm. pieces of information, you, you can stop looking at how their connection mm -hmm. and how the sequence of which I've given them to mm. changes the way you see them in their mind, the way you feel about them. Mm -hmm. and that can be really really powerful. At least I I hope it is. I think that really works for me. Yeah. And then the other thing is it just sort of seduces you into thinking that you're not being. Mm. Because you're getting, you're mm. digesting these small bits again and again and again. Mm. And then when the talking, when the frogs start talking, you're much more likely just to accept it as well. Yeah. And, and because again, the text is not questioning it. Yeah. The, the text is just giving you that information as if it's one more factual detail. Exactly. And I think that's, that's something that really worked well for me. It's yeah. just that. I mean, it's a technique, right? It is, but it's not one that I see lots of writers use, and certainly not well, in a, it, the way that you do. We don't have like, it, oh, there's the woman with green skin driving the car, and we just accept it <laughs> straight away. Like when I think of other yeah. genres, we don't get that directness. Yeah, I mean, I think, oh, oh, I'm not a writer that is, I'm not fancy, I'm not full of 
uh, fireworks. Do you know what I mean? And then, and also, it's like, like I, I'm not putting myself down at all mm, because it's super hard to get everything to mm. be that simple. I know. Like I work really hard to make it seem so yeah. simple. Uh, but there, I'm not the the writer that's like, uh, you know, I, I I barely know how to use a semicolon. I, mm. I my I don't really have a the poetics of what I do are in the narrative structure. They're not in how the words sit on the page. I'm not someone who, uh, you know, I don't think there's that many people writing uh, Andrew Coppin quotes on their binders. Do you know what I mean? I don't mm. think that that's, that's not my forte. Then again, that's why I'm, I've am i never had any problems or why I've even embraced the word parable, right? Cause mm-hmm. I think the, the highest compliment I can do is to create a story mm. that can exist on its own without right like mm-hmm. just i would love that to think that you know these little tiny stories because the story means what it is right you can interpret it but the telling for me takes away from the actual story if it's too fancy mm-hmm. yeah. i don't know a better word than but yeah. uh that's it i can appreciate that and so I wanted to ask you again when you're talking about the parable, about your characters and how you develop them and how you kind of observe and filter people that you see in the world and how that feeds into your process. Because um, to my mind from reading your books, you're both brilliant at like putting characters into types and doing that very blatantly. Um, in, for example, in All My Friends Are Superheroes, where we'll literally have like the falling girl or the battery, but they're not your usual types. So we're not talking about just the usual tropes that we see out there. They're very distinct observations that you've taken and put into a type for us to absorb. And you're also really great at developing like really distinctive characters, say within a, a family unit for Born Weird, where each is very distinct and you know exactly who they are as soon as they start to speak. So I'd love to know more generally, like how you think about the characters as you're creating them, um, how you like to approach them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I think my characterization is is the area that I I'm, should work on the most. Uh, but I... Well, here, I'll answer, I'll answer that in two ways. One, all my friends start, superheroes start as a zine. I don't know. Mm. Do you know what I mean by a zine? Okay. So I had yes. a zine called Scruffy. And uh, I had a special issue was called uh, If My Friends Were Superheroes, where I literally took all my friends mm. and turned them into a superhero, which just became the middle parts in the books between the mm. sections. Uh, uh, and so that's how that book started. And it was just so much fun. I kept going. Mm. Or they didn't uh, well. Uh, but overall, I always start, I have such a hard time uh, naming characters. So I start working on a project. I I have st- I have story before I have characters. Mm. And then as I'm working through the story and I'm working through the people who are in the story, eventually there'll be a point where it's like, oh, this is Carrie. Mm. Or, oh, this is Michael. Or, do you know what I mean? They, they, I realize that the character is a lot like somebody I know. Mm. And then that's usually when I get the fake name or the name. Uh, and then I just write them as if, they really are this friend of mine. Mm. So uh, so that's the process for me. I never, I'm not one of the writers who, I, I mean, so I, yeah, I don't, 
I don't have characters that jump into my head fully formed. Mm. Uh, every all my characters are based on people that I love a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's how it works. I know. I it's again. It's the same thing when I get that point where I can feel like the text can stand on its own. Uh, and it's not. You know what I mean? That we yeah. were talking about what gets to the straight man point. I think that I have the same feeling for my characters when I figure out who they are hmm. in real life. When I figure out who, well, yeah, that's Dave. And so yeah. then all of a sudden their decisions make more sense. And I mean, it's it's obviously compl- more complicated than that because I'm not, I think it would be impossible to actually write a character that's based on a person that actually it's that person 100%. Because I only know, even my closest friends, I know only in specific point of view right there's 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 different families they work they're all that sort of stuff right so mm. i'm really only seeing them through the lens of my friendship but uh and i mean to prove the point rarely do the people who i've based a character on think that for the people that i've based the character on usually they 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 think it's someone else which is great love that so much so anyway that's my process yeah, and that makes sense. And I love that you bring like that sense of a lot of love to it. And again, I think it gives that um, coherent stamp that is just means it'd be very hard to replicate your work, even if it's someone else was going to be like, oh, I'm also going to have fantastical elements, or I'm also going to use really simple sentences. Like that, you can. I just feel like when I read your books, you can just feel like the beating heart of the human behind them in a way that I love. Like for example, I also um, I find. Ray Bradbury in really inspiring as a writer in the sense yeah. that I think he's also um quite unabashed and unashamed about um writing about feelings and then it doesn't have to be like the the minutiae of feelings it's not that we then dissect one but that he's happy to bring all that to it all the joy all the sadness all the terror in that really open big-hearted way which I really love um, and I I really love I think part of the reason I'm drawn to your books as well is that um, really wonderful contribution, like combination of high level feeling, but done in a way that I can um, experience. Because sometimes when things, like I'm not great actually at watching like drama films that are- I can't um, either. Uh, about, Half because the time it I just, have to turn it off. Yeah, it's just it's, too, it's too, too much. Yes. I can't see the horrible things happen to this guy. Exactly. I've never been able to make it through Breaking Bad. Yeah. I've never made it through The Sopranos. Mm. It's just like, it's just all, all, nothing but horrible things are going to happen to this guy. I just, yeah. It, so I hear what you're saying. I, I mean, that's why, that is honestly why I like allegory so much. I mm. feel like it articulate. I personally think allegory can articulate emotional situation mm. better than realism. I don't mm. think realism gets it. If If I'm on a date, if I'm on a first date and we're having dinner, and I described the menu and how she's playing with her phone and all that sort of stuff that does a certain extent that tells me the date's not going well. Mm. But if I'm at the table and the the date throws wings and flies away, mm. then that's uh, then that's more powerful to me. That's the mm-hmm. same story. And as the as the person left alone at the table, that you know what I mean? That that hurt, mm-hmm. that that abandonment, all that sort of stuff is gonna be so much stronger. Mm. If it's if it's exaggerated into an allegorical situation, because both the mm. realism version of that and the allegorical version of that still have two people on the table and one leave, right? Mm. So mm-hmm. why is it powerful if she says, "Oh, uh, 
my babysitter just canceled. I have to go. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that isn't as powerful to me as if she just, you know, turns into mist. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. I'm 100% with you on that. And thank you. You've given me so much more language to put around um, why I like that. Because honestly, like it might sound kind of silly, but I wouldn't have really thought to use the word allegory about some of the things I like. But as soon as you describe it, it's like that. But that's actually what it is. And it's. That's what it is. That, yeah. 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 So that's awesome. So um, we've sort of touched on it a little bit, like the, those big um, feelings. And, I'd, and I think you've already sort of partially answered this. Like, I'm curious, though, how like humor and heartbreak fit together for you in the kind of themes that you choose to write about. Um, like, I think from my perspective, for example, I'm, I just feel like they're so hard to separate. So like you said, I don't know if it's the Canadian thing, if it comes with it all, or if it's too hard to bear without. But for why for you do you think that they um, are fused, if you think they are, in a way that makes people say your books are the, like, the saddest and the funniest, and there's always both? I, it, uh, well, yeah, so there's two, I'd say there's two things. One okay. is, and this, this comes from my family, uh, and if you've read One Weird, this is... Mm. This is this book especially, but my family tends to, my family are all emotional. We're all mm. very strong feelers. Uh, and we do use the metaphor I've always used is that we kind of use uh, humor as oven mitts. So mm. we, there's something super hot on the stove mm. and it's there's a crisis, it's got to go off the stove or whatever. And so oven mitts are what it allows us to wrap that. Mm. And so that's, that's I grew up with that. That's what humor is for. That's mm. what humor is there for. Uh, and, and, how, and you can do amazing things if you have, you know, you're still going to have to unpack that. It's still going to be emotional down the road. But during that moment of crisis, that's a wonderful way to keep the wheels turning, right? So, mm. so that's definitely an instinct. Uh, and the other thing is, is that it's just, I find so much of the world just so absurd mm. that it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like the things that have the horrible, horrible things. When you think about the probability of that happening, when you think about that, like just, just the comic timing of tragedy, like mm. it's just, it's, it's unbelievable that it, that it happened, that it happened this way. It happened. Mm. And there's just something about all of us, you know, we're just small, weak, people mm. we don't have scales we don't really have claws like mm. we humans have no survival skills other than our brain yeah right like we're just we're just meat we're yes. just meat walking around <laughs> waiting to be right and it's like and we're trying so hard you know we have cars and jobs and and we're being fancy and we're doing everything we can to consider ourselves significant mm. and have these significant lives and then boom you know, a spare tire changes mm. everything. And mm. that's funny, right? It's that's yeah. funny to me that all so much effort and so much plans and so much care can be completely undone with something as simple as a patch of ice, a mm. banana peel. You know what I mean? Like it's 100%. like it's just it's just it just and it you know, and there's a release in that too. I think think it's like we tried we think in our culture, God, I'm really going on, but I'm almost done. But I I, in our culture, we really think that we're in control, mm-hmm. right? Mm. We think that that 
what happens to you is of your own making that that, mm. that you're working hard therefore you'll succeed that you know what i mean like you're a good person so good things are going to happen to you we have all these rules that that prove to us that we're in control of our lives our decision and the kind of things that happen to us and it's just bullshit mm. and it's just like there's such a release when when you know what i mean like when you can't stop in time and you run into the volkswagen in front of you you know it's like you just and now now you're not gonna be at work at time you're right all the mm. planets all these terrible things that you worked so hard to achieve just illustrates that you have no control mm. you have no control and so i think there's a huge release I, even in tragedy mm. you're like there is a huge release because of course as you can say oh that was beyond my control Mm. there's really nothing I can do about that which is the only way you're going to get through that tragedy and there's a huge amount of joy even in that horrible horrible place of being able to face the reality because mm. you can't look away from it that yeah I don't have as much control as I thought I'm actually not in control therefore I'm my failures aren't 100% my own mm. therefore the fact that I, you know, have not achieved my goal is not like so. Uh, that's so. That's funny. So it's, it feels good to have that release to be proven wrong, and then it's just so unexpected, and it just proves how how stupid we are to think that we've actually all this place. <laughs> yeah, I I think all of what you said is so incredibly perceptive and I'm going to carry that oven mitt uh, analogy with me forever because it's like, yeah, that's just such a perfect way of explaining what some of those situations feel like. And I also feel yeah. that uh, too. And thank goodness for oven mitts. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Man. Makes life a lot we more We didn't better. have them. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like it, I remember, I remember when I was growing up, there was a show called Ogre Hero. Did you mm. have that in? It was Possibly. Really I, don't, I haven't seen it. It was a sitcom. It was a sitcom. It was a mm. stupid sitcom that was set in a World War II uh, field. Mm. So it was run by Nazis, like actual okay. Nazis wearing Nazi uniforms, right? Oh, wow. And they were always the blunt of the jokes. They were always like, they were fools and morons and bubblers. And the, and the, the prisoners actually had this uh, elaborate, pathway of tunnels and secret radios that would go out do uh you know maneuvers they blow up bridges and, and 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 get rid of all the nazi airplanes and all this sort of stuff uh and i've always to me that's always been the better way mm. like right now fascists are around nazis are around and what are we doing we're scared of them mm. right mm. we think it's like all oh, these guys are so powerful all oh, those nazis and it's like Sorry, but fuck that. It's like mm. it was way more powerful when we all realized that they were bumbling fool mm. that like could be cut down the side. That we didn't that and I just feel that they'd become more powerful because you become afraid of them. Mm. And if you can laugh at them, anything you can laugh at, you're gonna be able to deal with. So the fact that we so that's a long way of saying, uh, I think we, it's one of the beautiful things about humor is it's that it proves to you, even if that eventual mm. recovery is two years away, five mm. years away, even if you're the next three months are going to be hell, if you can laugh at what that horrible thing is, mm. you know you're gonna you're gonna see, or at least survive. Because 
No, I think that's totally right. And I love that, that that's true for us as humans in like really private personal senses and also in, like you say, political senses. And we think back to like gestures and the court and the king, like for the longest time, 100%. humans yeah. Yeah, have um, been using humor to as an amazing survival strategy that feels way better than many other things that we do when we're in pain and also as a way to redistribute power and um but in a fun way. So I love that. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Um, so I'd love to ask you a little bit about your uh, writing process because your Instagram uh, handle, Manual Typewriter Forever, is that a joke or is that for real? <laughs> oh, it's for real. It's it? scarily for real. Okay. Yeah, I, um, uh, I love to edit. I mm. love to edit. Mm. And that's, it's like whittling. I love mm taking something that's a 3,000 words and making it a thousand. Um, mm-hmm. All those, like, all my friends, superheroes, and the Tiny Wave, both of uh, books that come in around, like, I don't know, like, less than 20K, somewhere out, if, I think, anyway, 50. Mm. But uh, they bought, they started double the length, right? And it's just, like, I love getting it tighter and smaller. Can I make, can I make these three sentences one? Mm. Do I need this piece of information? All I'd love just condensing it like I'm making maple syrup, right? Like just boiling mm. off the water. Love it. Uh, but because of that, I tend to do a lot of editing before I get a first draft. Mm. So if I'm on a computer, computers are made to edit. Mm. Fabulous, right? You just yeah. uh, If I'm on a typewriter, it's almost impossible to go back. Yeah. You're just, I'm just going forward. And then even if I do... Because I will, I'll take the paper out and write on the paper, but then it's still there. It doesn't disappear the same way it does on a computer screen. So my process is that I do a first draft from beginning to end on a typewriter. Um, mm. I have many of them. Do you? Uh, and yeah, I do. Do I have, there's a, I used to buy them at Salvation Armies, uh, thrift shops. Mm. And now they're like super, super expensive. Mm. Uh, now they're considered antiques. But the upside of that is that there's now actually a place in trial that will repair them. Uh, anyway, so I do like my nice paper, like fancy paper, way too much for paper. And then I type uh, a first draft. Mm. And I don't make it pretty. Mm. I just like, here's the story. Here are the characters. This is what happens to them. Um, and that usually takes about, well, that depends. It can be like three months, a year, somewhere around there. Uh, and then, uh, and then I spend about two years like, yeah. per year either. So that's the actual writing. And then, I mean, I all, I'm also someone who works. I, I, I editors are very important. Mm. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, there's a lot of writers who will, we're going to text and then be, uh, you know, really, really protective of, of the words they created sequence. Mm. Where I've always like, yeah, yeah, tell me what's wrong. Tell me what needs to be improved and how to improve it and I'll totally make it happen. So, right. That's but, and I think, yeah, because no, um, that was actually going to be um, one of my final questions was about the editing process for you because I was wondering about that because in reading the books, it feels like they have just such a clear, distinct vision, such a clear, distinct voice. Just everything seems so crystal clear. 
I was wondering what that editing process is like for you, what you find, as you find helpful in terms of feedback, or is there anything that derails it? Like, what does an editor do with someone like you? Because like, I would say, I don't see your drafts before, but from the books, I'm like, this just is all just seems like it couldn't be any other way. Oh my God. So much has changed. I, does it? I, I usually, like I have, so every one of the books has a problem, right? There's mm. some sort of metaphorical problem. Some Dom is invisible to his wife. The uh, wife is shrinking. Mm. Uh, the blursing, or, you know, the grandmother's about to die. Mm. All that sort of stuff, right? All this, all premise, high concept. Mm. Uh, and then, so that's when I start writing. And then I usually write, and then I just, I don't make outlines. I don't make cue cards or drafts or anything. I just start writing. And then it reveals itself. And then, but then, uh, and then, then you have to go back again because it's so allegorical mm. and because it's working with this weird dream logic, everything has to make sense, mm. right? It, like emotive sense or intuitive sense. I don't know how to mm. understand it or mm -hmm. how to articulate it, but it just got to feel right in your gut. If it mm. doesn't feel like whatever this metaphor is standing for, when it comes into action with this metaphor, the result of that has to say something and feel right, mm. right? So if I'm talking about love and this and and it's about distance, well then the way that's expressed has to feel like what it feels like, right? Mm. So that is rarely I rarely achieve that on the first draft. So go back. Um, my editors, I'm, I mean, Alana Wilcox is my favorite editor. She was Coach's books, and she's great because she will never actually say you should do this. She will just say in a really kind way that, that I can hear. She'll just say, I don't think this is working. I, okay. This gets lost to me. I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. Mm. When he does this, I don't buy it. And, and I'm, my response will be, but he has to do that because otherwise I don't have the plot. Yeah. She's like, mm, well, I don't know. Then the, I don't know. And she's always right. She's always right. It's like that still happens, but there's an emotional beat, but there's, mm. there's a decision that they've made. Because I've forced them to rather than what really should happen. And I need to rewrite that and put it in some sort of different metaphor or some different situation so yeah. that it all has. I mean, my books aren't complicated. They're straight lines, right? They're all really, um, they all start here. There's a problem and then there's the solution. But I find it incredibly hard to maintain that straight line. Mm. I, it's just it's 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 just so hard to make everything line up for mm. way. I mean, which is a challenge I love, and then short, and I always want really yeah. <laughs> no, I I can see all the challenges, and it looks beautiful and perfect when it's done. But I see how that would be so challenging because it, like you say, in some ways a straight line, but also just like you say, this perfect web of like feelings and associations i love the way you're describing it as like whether it's dream logic or intuitive logic but it's not dream logic in the sense of oh we can just all go off for a ride like everything ties no. perfectly back in it's not yeah. the, like i don't know the shower scene in dallas of the soap where there's a dream and you can get away with <laughs> almost murder so no it has to be well, just that's how the right are. resonance yeah when you have a dream that you can't forget mm. there's a reason for it Right, mm -hmm. like you may not be able to say why it was your best friend from high school in a, mm. you know, in a Toyota Forerunner, and you went and and played 
in ball or mountain. You know what I mean? I'm just mm. pulling metaphors mm-hmm. out. But there's something about your brain's language. So each one of yeah. those symbols has yeah. an association. Yeah. So you wake up in the morning, and you feel like you have some clarity, almost like mm. you understand something just because of that combination of images that have been yeah. thrown at you and what the narrative, right? Yeah. So dream logic, I think, is like, like honestly, anything can happen in real life. Real mm. life is random. It's like, it's it's uncontrollable and it, it's, and you don't really have to explain anything because everyone just goes, yeah, that sounds right. You know, even yeah. when crazy coincidences happen, everyone's like, okay, yeah, wow, crazy, mm. right? No one says, oh, yeah, I don't buy that. Where in fiction, everything mm. has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. It's the other way around. Mm. If it if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't mm. feel metaphorically right, then you're going to put the book down. You're gonna, mm. I'm going to lose your this week. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I see where it's a challenge, but oh my goodness, well done. That's <laughs> all I can say. <laughs> Filling it off and shout out to your editors as well. <laughs> so um, the last question is just any advice that you have found useful or apply? Oh my God, I'll give you the best piece of advice yeah. that was given to me. What's that? Uh, get a day job mm. where you work on a computer and no one can see your screen. Oh, Sneaky. And that, yeah. that was like, oh, because, you know, it's super hard to make a lot of money off of fiction. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of fiction writer, writers have some sort of day job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're in a situation where you can work super hard at your day job from 9 to 11 and then spend 11 to 3 working on your novel and then 3 to 5 making sure no one notices that you took those four hours yeah. off, then, then that's an art grant. <laughs> you're 100% right that's great advice I love it Oh well it's been such a delight speaking with you thank you so much for all that you've so generously shared and giving me an insight into your brain and how you think about these things that I think can be quite elusive but that I'm fascinated by so I'd love to wrap up with um, where should people come and find you if they want to see more of your work and of course I will uh, put these in the show notes too yeah, okay. Well, Instagram. I'm fairly yeah. regular on Instagram. Um, I my website is the uh Epiphany Detective Agency, but it's down for eight now. So oh, no worries. I'm really bad with the website. I'm really bad with all of the stuff. So uh Instagram is the best place. Yeah. Uh, uh and otherwise coach house. Coach house. Well coach Perfect. We'll put those all in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, I appreciate it. It was great. It was fun.